0: c-o-c-o-r-i-s dot com now let's hear from Mike human beings cannot tolerate being being accused of doing something wrong and therefore feeling guilty so as a general rule they will do anything to avoid uh, the feeling of guilt if you uh, were to talk to a uh, person who is moral and uh, talk to him about the fact that he is a sinner, and when he stands before God, he will have to give an account, then he will immediately point to his morality for the simple reason that he cannot handle being accused of doing something wrong, and he cannot handle the guilt. Or if you talk to a religious person about his uh, accountability before God, he will very often do the same thing. He will point to his religion, to the rituals that he goes through, and claim that he has some merit before God, and therefore he doesn't have to face that guilt. My point is very simply that human beings have a very difficult time facing guilt, so they will grab anything they possibly can to use as a lever or an advantage to eliminate that feeling of guilt, especially before God. Now, that's something of what is taking place at the point we've come to in the book of Romans. Let me back up just a bit and explain to you what I mean. In Romans chapter 1, Paul starts out saying that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. From verse 18 down through the end of the chapter, Paul pronounces all men under the wrath of God. He pronounces all men unrighteous. Beginning in chapter 2, he turns his attention to those who are not unrighteous, but self-righteous. He points toward those people who have some degree of morality. And again, he concludes, that they too will face the judgment of God and when they do, they will be weighed and found wanting. Toward the end of the chapter, he then turns his attention toward those who are religious. He specifically mentions the Jews of his day. They were aghast at the fact that they would be judged by God. They would cling to their righteousness, to their ritual, to their religion. And so Paul tells them that they will stand before God, and that their religion, namely their circumcision, will be of no avail. But you see, man has a very hard time handling that. He will tenaciously fight for some cover, some lever, some advantage. He'll do anything to say, I am not guilty. So what we have in the next part of Romans is this religious person, in the case of Paul, the religious Jew of the first century, saying, but I have an advantage, don't I? And it seems to me that that's the typical kind of thing that people argue. At least that's what Paul starts out saying, and then he follows that with another objection and still another. So I want to invite your attention to Romans chapter 3 which is actually a continuation of our dealing with this religious person and his claiming that he has some kind of of an advantage. Let's begin at chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul says, What advantage then has the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Then he answers his own question. Verse 2, Much in every way, chiefly because that unto them was committed the oracles of God. Then he asks another question, and what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not, he answers. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged." But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not, Paul answers in verse 6. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. Now very frankly, folks, as I've moved through Romans thus far, I have found Paul's argument very tight-knit. There is no passage I've come to in Romans thus far that is as finely woven as this passage. One commentator says and I quote here is one of these passages where Paul's arguing in the closest and in the most difficult way. There's a sense in which these verses that I just read though they are few in number are complex. What I'm gonna try to do is simplify what is said here. Actually it is probably easiest to understand this passage as if there is an imaginary objector who is asking questions and Paul in turn answers those questions so that in Romans chapter three verses one to eight there are three objections and there are in turn three answers the first objection is in verses one and two I should say the first objection and the first answer is in the first two verses the second objection and its answer are in verses 3 and 4 and the third objection is in verses 5 through 8 now keep in mind that in chapter 2 at the bottom of chapter 2 Paul has said that the religious Jew of his day is going to stand and give an account before God now that automatically provokes two questions well then if that's the case then what advantage does the Jew have? I mean, I thought that God had given him the Old Testament. Then if if he's going to be judged like everybody else, what advantage does he have? And so the first question in verse 1 is what advantage then hath the Jew? But that statement in the bottom of chapter 2 also provokes a second question, and that is if God gave the Jew the Old Testament Scripture... And now you're saying that um, the Jew is going to be judged just like everybody else. Then what does that have to say about the faithfulness of God? Ultimately, because of what Paul has said in chapter 2, the very credibility of God is at stake. So the second question deals with the faithfulness of God. Out of the answer that Paul gives to that question or objection, there comes a third objection which we'll get to in just a minute. But what I want you to understand is that this passage consists of three objections and three answers. Now, with that in mind, let's look at the first. He asked very simply, What advantage then has the Jew? Or, more specifically, What is the profit of circumcision? Now, that is directly related to chapter 2 where at the end of the chapter he said in verse 25, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. And in verse 26 of chapter 2 he says, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? In other words, at the end of chapter 2, Paul is virtually eliminated any advantage that you have in being religious. He has virtually eliminated any advantage that you have in being circumcised. He is saying if you got circumcised but you didn't keep the law, you'd be judged. On the other hand, if you did keep the law and you weren't circumcised, that would be counted as if you were. So the most logical question in the world then is, well, what advantage then does the Jew have? Because God gave to him the right, R-I-T-E, of circumcision. And if it doesn't ultimately matter whether you're circumcised or not, then what profit is there of uh, being a Jew or being given the ritual of circumcision? Be like someone today saying, uh, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in a church that believed the Bible. Now you come along and tell me I'm going to be judged and all that doesn't count, then what advantage was there in me having all of those benefits in my background? So that's the objection stated by this imaginary objector who undoubtedly is a Jew. Well, Paul gives the answer. Verse 2. He said, there are all kinds of advantages. Much every way, chiefly among others, because unto them was, were committed the oracles of God. In the first place, he says, you have all kinds of advantages. they are numerous, much, every way. In many, many ways, you had an advantage. Uh, The discipline that came out of keeping the Old Testament law, the dietary laws are just a few of the advantages the Old Testament Jews had. As a matter of fact, later in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul lists some of the advantages of the Jew. For example, in chapter 9, he says, Who am an Israelite of whom pertaineth the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises? All that's recorded in Romans chapter 9, verse 4. So in chapter 3, verse 2, when he says, Much every way, he means you had all kinds of advantages. Some grow up objecting to being reared in a strict religious home, but the simple reality is that there are advantages beyond the spiritual advantages to such an upbringing. The discipline that comes out of that will serve you well for the rest of your life. As a matter of fact, I many years ago read a survey that they had taken over people who had been reared in pastor's homes, and they discovered that And this had nothing to do with theology necessarily, but that children who grew up in pastor's homes tended to do much better in schools and colleges. And that is because of some of the discipline that is put upon them as a general rule. So that's the kind of thing Paul is saying here. Uh, Oh yeah, you had plenty of advantages, but let me tell you of the great advantage that you had as a Jew. He says in verse 2, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God, which is simply a reference to the Word of God. The little phrase, oracles of God, has been greatly debated. Uh, some want to say it's simply the promise of the Messiah, but I have concluded after looking at all the arguments that uh, it's really a reference to all of the Old Testament Scriptures. So he says, look, let me tell you the great, great advantage that you had. The great advantage that you had is the Scripture. The Scripture was a great advantage to you being a Jew. Uh, there are all kinds of advantages in having a copy of the scriptures in your hand. Uh, there are mental advantages. As a matter of fact, the writer to the book of Proverbs says that uh, part of the book of part of the reason the book of Proverbs was written was so that you might be sharp mentally. And then, of course, there is the moral superiority of uh, the Jewish nation over the other nations of the world. As a matter of fact, in the first century, many Gentiles became Jews simply because of the moral superiority of Judaism. Paganism and heathenism was so degenerate that uh, many people were attracted to the Mosaic system simply because of its high standards of morality. So Paul is saying... Uh, I didn't mean to suggest you didn't have an advantage. You've got plenty of advantages. Uh, chiefly, you were given the Word of God. I can't <clears throat> pass that up without pausing long enough to say that the Jews in the Old Testament were advantaged because they had the Scripture, and the Christians in the New Testament are advantaged because we have the Scripture. It seems to me that we uh, save ourselves from falling into all kinds of uh, traps, moral traps, simply because we have a copy of the Scripture in our hand, that we have an advantage over the rest of humanity just because we hold a copy of the Scriptures. So, Paul is saying, yes, you as a Jew do have an advantage. Now, before we go on in Romans, it seems to me that um, there's one other issue we need to speak to. Thus far in the book of Romans... Paul has argued that all men have some revelation of God. Remember that in chapter 1? Now he's arguing that the Jews have an advantage over everybody else in that they have the Scriptures. So that everybody has some light, the Jews, Paul is arguing in this passage, have a greater light, they have the direct revelation of God, the very Word of God itself. Let me illustrate the difference between these two. At least it helps us get in perspective the thrust of these first three chapters of Romans. Someone has suggested this is like an island that is engulfed in darkness. And there is one bridge between the island and the mainland, but because it's dark, nobody can find the bridge. But everybody on the island is equipped with a little pin light. And they're walking around in the darkness of this island with a small pin light trying to find the bridge. But, the illustration goes, some individuals on that island have huge spotlights. Now that's an illustration of the difference between the Jews and the rest of the world. Everybody's given some light. Romans chapter 1 argues they're given the light of creation. But the nation of Israel was given a greater light. They were given the brilliant bright light of the Word of God itself. Now what God intended, of course, is that they would use that bright light to find the bridge and then lead the rest of the people of the world over it. But that's not exactly what happened. Oh, it happened a few times. The queen of Sheba came over to see Solomon. Jonah went to Nineveh. There were cases in the Old Testament where it did happen. Even even Ruth uh, was a pagan who came to know the Lord in the Old Testament. But by and large, those Jews who had the light of the world in the Scripture, instead of using it to point the world to the bridge, pointed it down, so to speak, to look for the proverbial needle in a haystack. They examined and analyzed the light. In other words, they didn't believe, they didn't use the light that they had. Now, that forms the basis of the next objection. I mean, to everything that Paul said, well, if God gave all these promises and it didn't work, what does that say about the faithfulness and credibility and trustworthiness of God? So Paul introduces the second imaginary objection. He says in verse 3, For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Now he's saying they had an advantage, verse 2 but they didn't believe it. They were in unbelief. Now, what does that have to say about the faithfulness of God? In other words, he is saying, does the unbelief of Israel invalidate or make void God's faithfulness? If God gave a promise and said, I'm going to fulfill it, but they didn't believe it, and therefore he didn't fulfill it, then God isn't faithful to his promise, right? This is a serious charge. It smacks at the very foundation of everything Paul is doing in the book of Romans. So how do you answer that, Paul? Well, his his answer is interesting. He says in verse 4, Certainly not. He said, absolutely, dogmatically, categorically not. Just because man doesn't believe doesn't mean that God is unfaithful. Then he says in verse 4: Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Now, (laughs) my question is: how does that answer the question? Uh, Well, if you look at this carefully, what he's doing is quoting Psalm 51, verse 4. And uh, he is saying in this passage that just because man didn't respond properly doesn't prove that God was unreliable or untrustworthy or unfaithful. As a matter of fact, he's arguing, it proves just the opposite. And uh, though it's not immediately apparent as you read verse 4, if you go back into Psalm 51, um, what it amounts to is this. Uh, David committed sin with Bathsheba. Uh, she got pregnant, and uh, a prophet came along, stuck his bony finger in David's face and said, you are the man, and David repented. That was many, 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 many months later, by the way. It didn't happen all of a sudden. Then, after David got right with the Lord, he wrote Psalm 51, which is what Paul is quoting here. And part of what he says in Psalm 51 is this. Now fasten your seatbelt because it's going to sound a little strange. But I remember preaching through Psalm 51 and seeing this and thought it was strange then. I've bumped into it again in Romans 4 and I still think it's a little odd. But here's what David said. Uh, I sinned that you may be justified in your words. And that you, that, that uh, and that may be overcome when you are judged. And David is saying, Lord, I sinned so that I could prove you were right. Now, he's not trying to justify his sin. What he is saying is this Lord, the very fact that that I sin proves that you're faithful and you're righteous because you said all of us humans are sinners. You get what's going on? This is really clever. The objective is saying, Aha! Israel didn't believe. Therefore, what does that say about the faithfulness of God? And Paul says, I'll tell you what it says about the faithfulness of God and the trustworthy and reliability of God. It says God was right all along because he said we were a bunch of sinners anyway. How's that for an answer? But the real point Paul is establishing is this. The Jews did have an advantage in the Old Testament. They had the Word of God, and God was faithful. And God's faithfulness is not made void or invalidated by the unbelief of men. Now, that's an awesome truth. That really is. I want you to turn to Psalm 89. Put your finger in Romans, because we're going to come back. But I want you to turn to Psalm 89. And I want you to look at verse 30. This is another passage Paul could have quoted but didn't that says, in essence, the same thing. Psalm 89, verse 30, says this. If his sons forsake my law, And do not walk in my judgments. If they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even the faithful witness in the sky, Selah. Now, that passage of Scripture is teaching that God made promises to Israel And even if Israel sinned, God would be faithful to his promise. So not even the sin of man invalidates or abrogates the faithfulness of God. Now, let's go back to Romans 3. So far, what we've seen is that at the end of chapter 2, Paul has taught that your religion is not going to help you. More specifically, circumcision is not going to help you. Now, since God gave circumcision, that immediately provokes two questions. Number one, well, what advantage then was there in being circumcised? Or what advantage was there in being a Jew? And secondly, what does that have to say about the faithfulness of God? And so far, Paul has given two answers. Number one, the Jews had plenty of an advantage. And secondly, even if we sin, that doesn't nullify the faithfulness of God. But now that answer provokes a third objection. Now this one really gets interesting. You see, Paul's answer to that last question was, why your sin doesn't negate the faithfulness of God. It affirms it because God said we were sinners to begin with, right? Now listen to this objection. Look at verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? If is God unjust who inflicts wrath, I speak as a man. Now, Paul says, let me give you another objection. I'm going to speak as an ordinary man now. I'm just going to imagine that this is an objection. Why, if my unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, then why would He judge my unrighteousness? After all, it revealed His righteousness. So He shouldn't judge me, right? Is that sneaky? Is that clever? I mean, that. Well, I started out saying man will do anything to justify himself, won't he? He'll do anything but face his guilt, and this is just another attempt to do that. Donald Gray Barnhouse, a Bible teacher of a bygone day who's now with the Lord, uh, illustrated the absurdity of this question by telling of something that happened to him after World War I. He was in Brussels, and there were shops who did nothing but sell beautiful, expensive lace. And he went into one of these stores. He was a soldier boy at the end of World War One, and the war was over. And he went into one of these shops to buy a handkerchief for um, his mother. And uh, there were two elderly ladies who were proprietors of the store, and they showed him some of this... Uh, gorgeous lace. And in order to highlight how beautiful it was, they put down a piece of black velvet and laid this uh, beautiful lace on top of it. And uh, uh, he asked how much it was, and he was given a price that surprised him. And... um, he didn't realize this was so expensive and so he asked why it was so expensive and they commenced to tell him what all went into making a piece of this lace and uh, they didn't have a lot of business that day and they even went to the safe and they got out a piece of uh, uh, lace that was part of the wedding dress of the princess and they brought it and showed it to him It was valued at ten thousand dollars even back in that day which no telling how much would be worth today and again they laid out a piece of black velvet and they put the white lace on top of it so that by contrast he could see the intricacies and the beauty of this lace then barnhouse said if at the end of the day they had gotten angry at the black velvet and cut it to shreds why we'd have thought they were crazy why they used that black velvet to bring out the beauty of the lace. Why would they now attack the black velvet? And that's something of the question Paul is asking. Why, my sin served a good purpose. It demonstrated God was righteous. So you wouldn't judge me, would you? I mean, perverted, right? But that's the kind of thing that man will do. So Paul answers it. He says in verse 6, Certainly not. Can I give you the modern paraphrase? Crazy. Of course not, he says in verse 6. For then how will God judge the world? Now again, I told you this passage was tightly woven. Now I look at that and want to say, how does that question answer the objection? And uh, there's some assumptions in here that they would have understood immediately. It was a given In ancient Israel that God was going to judge the world and therefore there was justice in the world so that all Paul has to say at this juncture is well if you're gonna be that absurd and say you can get away with your sin how is God going to judge the world and there be justice in the world and of course that may not answer your objection but it would of the Jews because they did assume that God was going to judge the world and therefore there was justice in the world. So in essence, Paul has answered that question. In other words, his question assumes, and this is what you have to understand, that God will judge and that therefore God will judge justly. And so the question is absurd. Now, he then explains, verse 7, For if the truth of God has increased through my lie, To his glory why am I also judged as a sinner now frankly uh, verse 7 is nothing more than a repetition of verse 5 the difference being that um, uh, verse 5 zeros in on uh, sin and verse 7 talks about the sinner but it's the same objection why look I told a lie and that showed that God was righteous so why should you judge me for the lie that's his point And he answers, and why not say, verse 8, let us do evil that good may come. Why his argument is, if you're going to follow this train of thought, you might as well just say, well, let's go sin more and more and more and more so that good can come. Namely, God's righteousness can be exalted. And then he says, and this explains why he brought all this up. He says, as we are slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say. In other words, Paul's doctrine of grace as we shall see when we get to chapter 6, led some people to say, why, if that's all you have to do to be saved, why, you could go out and do anything you wanted to. I guess that Paul says you ought to sin a little just so more good can come. Did ever anybody tell you that? Listen, let me tell you something. The Bible teaches that salvation is a free gift, right? I mean, it really does. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. People can't handle that doctrine. I mean... Just recently I was witnessing to somebody and she said well if that's all you have to do then you could go out and, and, and commit murder. You know right? You ever had anybody tell you that? If you teach or preach the gospel of the grace of God very long that is, a, that is an objection you're going to get. Why if that's the case. If it's all by grace then you could just go sin. Matter of fact, Paul in chapter 6 says, well, shall then we continue in sin so that grace can abound? Same argument here. They were accusing him of saying, well, then you can just go do evil so that good can come about. He says, now that's slanderous. We've never said that. Well, how do you answer it? That is so absurd, it's beneath my dignity to answer it. So he says in verse 8, their condemnation is just. Anybody that would slander me like that, their condemnation is just. I'm not going to dignify that with an answer. So to say that you ought to uh, do sin so that grace may abound or more specifically that our sin exalts the righteousness of God and therefore I'm going to get out of judgment while you're going to be judged and held accountable for that kind of stuff and if you attribute that to me, your condemnation is just because that's slander and I didn't say it. Ooh, kind of heavy. Now, what we've seen in this passage are three objections and three answers to the objections. Let me sum it all up. I think what Paul is saying in this passage is this. Granted, you Jews have an advantage, namely the Word of God, but unbelief does not nullify the faithfulness of God nor your sin, even though it proves Even though it proves God is righteous, it does not eliminate judgment. That's a mouthful. I told you at the beginning, this passage is uh, very tightly woven. Basically, what it boils down to is this. Let me just conclude by spelling out three very simple lessons. Number one, the Word of God is an advantage. Do you... um, Think having a copy of this is an advantage? Question, are you taking advantage of your advantage? Enough said. Secondly, God is faithful even though we do not trust Him. It's one of the great truths of this passage. The sin of man does not nullify the faithfulness of God. No matter what you do, God is faithful. Now, let me make two applications of that truth. Number one, God made some promises to Israel. He promised he was going to give them the land. The Jews uh, didn't believe, and they got booted out of the land. As a matter of fact, uh, the Messiah came, and they didn't even believe. Now, does that mean they're never going to get the land? No. No. Because the sin of man does not nullify the faithfulness of God. And I cannot help but make the little application that God said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Well, suppose you get saved and you do, God forbid, go back to sin. Is God going to withdraw his promise? No, folks. The sin of man does not nullify the grace and promises of God. Matter of fact, Paul says in Romans chapter eleven, the gifts and callings of God are, with, are without repentance. And one of the gifts of God is eternal life. So even my sin does not nullify the promises of God. You. Are eternally secure if you have genuinely trusted Jesus Christ. Now, He may chasten you, but you are secure. Isn't that comforting? Not even my sin can change my state. But you can't read this passage without coming to one other conclusion, and that is God's going to judge sin. In the whole context of the book of Romans, that's the point of this passage. And that's why he comes back to the subject of judgment. He starts out in chapter 1 talking about judgment, and he comes back to it in this passage. Verse 5, is God unjust who afflicts wrath. God is going to judge. Verse 7, if the truth of God is increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? A bottom line of this passage is God is going to judge sin. But you see, that's what this person, this imaginary objector wants to avoid. He'll do anything. He'll even accuse his sin of glorifying God to keep from thinking he'll be judged. So let me tell you something. The book of Romans is teaching God is is going to judge sin. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And that goes for self-righteous people who think they are moral, and it goes for religious people who think they are righteous. All men will stand before God and be judged. That's the awesome truth of the book of Romans. Now, let me close by telling you one other little thing, and this is getting ahead of myself. But if you keep reading the book of Romans, you will discover there's a way out of that judgment. Jesus died to pay for all that sin, and if you trust him as your Savior, you'll not be judged at the judgment of the great white throne. And you'll be guaranteed eternal life, and nothing can ever change that. And friends of mine said to me this week while we were having dinner together I read somewhere where a man said God'll settle out of court. (laughs) Isn't that good? All men are gonna stand before the judgment bar of God but I've got some great news for you. God's willing to settle out of court but out of court settlements usually get pretty expensive, right? And it was expensive it cost God his son so if you've never trusted Jesus Christ I invite you to trust him and you can avoid the judgment to come let's pray I'm serious about that if you haven't settled this issue before God you need to do it you need to do it tonight you can do it right where you sit you hadn't, got any, you hadn't got any hope in yourself. It's all in Jesus Christ. so look to him and him alone. Our Father, we give you thanks and praise. Studying a passage like this makes us appreciate even more the grace that you've extended to us through your Son, and we thank you for it. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, even when we are fickle and unfaithful, and you are faithful and gracious to us. That even makes us even more grateful that you've saved us by your grace. Now, our Father, I pray that the Spirit of God would uh, make us mindful again and again and again of what your grace really means to us. In Jesus' name I pray.